This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by Audible. Visit audiblepodcast.com slash excuse for free trial membership. This is Writing Excuses, Season 4, Episode 6, Question and Answer with James Dashner. Fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. Speak for yourself. <laughs> All right, we're going to do Q&A, yeah, rim shot, um, Q&A, and we're going to pitch most of these at Dashner. So, um, question number one, come on up and ask your question. Um, oh, yeah, you wrote it out for me, so you don't actually have to. Okay. <laughs> I, have, I have an outline in my head. I tried to write one out on paper, and I started writing out the story. All three versions are different. Which one should I follow, James? You know, I am not much of an outliner. I think if you're worrying so much about your outlines and which one's better and all that stuff, you're probably missing the power of your story. I would put all three aside and maybe just focus on the premise and just start writing and see what happens. I'm going to argue that uh, if, if you've got these three things that are disagreeing, which of the three are you trying to publish? Yeah, which probably the yeah. story. I, I would ask yourself, which one do you like the most? Pick that one and go. Um, and you know, maybe what, what's happening is that you are not a, an outliner, and it's just not working for you. You need to practice discovery writing like James does. Um, maybe you've got this great outline, and you aren't quite sure how to follow it, and it's annoying you that you aren't sure how to follow it. In that case, practice following the outline some more. Um, but my gut, guttural, um, guttural instinct, guttural, <laughs> your guttural instinct. My gut instinct reaction is to follow the one that you have written guttural. and discard the other two. Guttural instincts are for people with very hairy palates. <laughs> <laughs> okay, question number two, come on up. Speak into the bush. <laughs> Singing in the rain joke, people. How important is education to a writer? I mean, how important is it to go get a college degree, not just an English degree, but a college degree to a writer? That James. is perfect for me to answer because my major was in accounting, of all things. It's a very shameful, dark secret of mine. Oh! So my number one education to become a writer was the countless hundreds and thousands of books I've read throughout my life and then going to writers' conferences to fine-tune what I instinctively had learned from that. Is that why the climax of every book is people adding? <laughs> That's why everyone dies via calculator at some point in my books. Anyone else want to cover that one? Um, I'll say that I, I got a master's degree in creative writing. Um, I thought it was helpful. It was most helpful for stalling my parents. Um, but it was also helpful to give me workshopping experience and things like that. I do not think it is necessary. Um, and um, I think going to college and taking, get, take, taking classes in a lot of different things will be very helpful to you. Um, but it is not, by no means necessary. Yeah, um, I, I got an English degree because I love literature, but y you're going to learn more about writing from writing. And I think the key is get a college degree in whatever is interesting to you so you have something to write about. Let's do number question three. number three. Okay. Um, how do you do killings that are realistic and believable, but not <coughs> graphic? And then how do you put the character's feelings into how they killed the one person. Lots of hands-on research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, I, I found that book book learning just don't help when it comes to killing people. <laughs> oh boy, this one seems tailor made. Did, that, James, do you have anything, or should we just pitch that to Dan? He kills. Well, just make sure they're dead when you're done. That's all I got to say. Dan, let, let's let, let's let you do this one. How do you? How I don't you know. Mine are kind of graphic. Okay. Um, Honestly, it, it depends on what you're trying to do. Um, when I had something really horrifying, I would have it occur off stage, and then we would find the body later. Um, if I wanted to specifically shock, and there were places when that was the point, because the main character witnessed something horrifying, and the way to get the, the reader to feel that same emotion is to horrify them as well. And so there I stepped it up a little bit. Uh, stepped, stepped up the gore just slightly. Uh, but you don't have to be gory to, to be scary. And, and I don't know if, if, if even you're trying to be scary. My second book, Mr. Monster, is a tenth, maybe, as gory as the first book. But it's ten times more disturbing um, because it presents what happens in a very different way. It cuts out the blood, but gets, gets more into, into other freaky aspects behind it. So... It, how graphic you get depends on what you're trying to do. The one caution that I would offer is that if you are killing people in your books um, and you, you want it to be meaningful, uh, don't, don't shy away from making it meaningful. Nothing harms us more than reading about death and having it be meaningless or cheapened or, or whatever. I mean, societally, I just think that's damaging. If, if there's going to be killing, there needs to be a moral cost, and you have to show that somehow. Yeah, and if you want the death or the murder of a character to affect your reader, you got to make sure that the reader is emotionally invested in that character uh, before you have them killed off. Or if you want a character murdering someone to be, or killing someone, or something like this, to be emotionally active, still have to be invested in the character causing it. Yeah. Um, because if it causes pain to a character that we love, it will cause pain to our reader. And, you know, we're, regard, despite what Alcatraz says, our goal is not to give you pain, but our goal is to make you become emotionally invested in this story, to make it feel real to you, and give you the gambit of emotions. That's part of what we, we do. Well, and maybe your question is more about, say, a battle scene rather than a specific murder. Um, the, the one that I always think of is the original Ninja Turtles movie. Um, there, there's a huge fight in an antique shop with 5,000 ninjas and these four turtles. And, you know, three of the turtles, or I guess two of them, that's my turtle lore is faltering. Two of them are using bladed weapons. And they take down about 5,000 ninjas. Not a single drop of blood is spilt. You know, someone's actually whipping around katanas like that. Broke a, a lot of China, space. though. Yeah, there would be arms everywhere. That's and they, the one you always think They shied of? back too far from that, I think. Well, that's because it's a great example of what Howard was saying, that if, if you make it, you know, you take away too much of that emotional impact, I think it is, it is dangerous. Yeah. All right. Um, number four, question number four, where are you? Hurry on up here. Oh, right. Um, go ahead and speak into the microphone. Um, I do this under duress. Do you guys want a bagel? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.
Mike Rowe here with a few thoughts on my favorite sweatshirt. A classic zip-up hoodie that used to be navy blue but has since faded to what the fashionistas call a distressed indigo. It's 13 years old, soft as a flannel bathrobe, and after a few hundred dirty jobs, demonstrably and undeniably indestructible. This is the kind of sweatshirt girlfriends like to permanently borrow, but I've held on to this one because I got it from American Giant. American Giant makes all their stuff right here in the USA so they can control every link in their own supply chain. That matters because when you buy American Giant, you not only get great quality, you create jobs for people in factory towns all over the country. No pressure, but if you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American-Giant.com slash Mike to get 20% off your first order. That's American-Giant.com slash Mike. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. <laughs> Do you want a bacon mint? <laughs> I tell you what, why don't we break for an ad? Yeah, let's break for an ad while people eat their bagels. Um, thank you for bringing us bagels, by the way. Um, we are going to, this week, we are going to promo one of James Dashner's favorite books, um, Dean Kuhn's False Memory. James, why do you love this book? This book is amazing because it's a psychological thriller type book that, it's one of those where it builds up this amazing mystery and you know that you're going to be disappointed in what's behind everything, but you are not. It has some amazing twists, so I love it. Okay. Um, it, I have read only one Dean Kuhn's book, but I actually really liked it. So we'll give this a good recommendation. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash excuse, and you can download Dean Kuhn's False Memory for free um, on a 14-day free trial for audible.com's uh, book club. All right, we have question number five. Does a discovery writer... Does a discovery writer need an outline, or can they get away without it? All right, we're going to pitch this at James, because James, you are a discovery writer, as we've, as we've established. You know, I, I do need something. I, you know, Stephen King is one of my idols. He does zero outlining. He's like pure discovery writer. But I do like to at least jot out a page or two of notes. And I, it's very important to me that I have at least a, a somewhat of an understanding of how the book ends. So I would at least do kind of surface level outlining a little bit. So you're not just going all over the place in your story. I at least have a direction. Um, I would say the re best response to that question would be to try it out and see if it works for you. Um, keep in mind the cardinal rule that we have at Writing Excuses, which is if it doesn't work, ignore it. Um, and if it does work, use it. So try writing stories two or three different ways. Find out what works for you, and then keep doing it. Refine it. Get better at it. So does a little outline work for you? Yes. Do it more. No. And I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd argue that that's one of, the, one of the principles of good focused practice, is that if you look at something and you find out that it's not working, um, it may be because you're, you're not trying to do the part that's really hard. 
if there's hard parts that you're skipping, you're, you're, you're shorting yourself. Go do the hard parts. Practice them. Make them the easy parts. And if you're discovery writing because outlining is hard, uh, learn to outline. And I, I would worry that if, if you can't even do a simple short one, you might have a weak premise or your story might not be strong enough. So yeah, you may need more ideas um, stapled onto that premise. Well, hopefully elegantly woven into that premise. Um, I use staples. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Uh, question that number six. Easy. Question number six, the bagel dude is still handing out bagels. Thank you, bagel dude. Nothing like a good bagel. Mm. With no cream cheese. Who is an author that you would not recommend being inspirational to you in any way, shape, or form? And um, when he did this, I'm like, oh, I don't want to do that one. Then I thought, wait a minute. I can make James answer it. <laughs> so, James, who do you find not inspirational at all? Well, who do you want to present you? company excluded. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> I, okay, I'm just going to be honest. There, I, uh, recently I decided I was going to branch out in my reading to try to help my writing. So I, I was going to read books that I might not normally read. And so I started reading some of these mega best-selling mystery type stories uh, like Brad Thor and uh, Michael Connolly and, uh, man, I shouldn't have said their name, should I? The opinions expressed by James Dashner <laughs> are not necessarily opinions of Reddit excuses or its staff. All I can say is I did not like them. Okay. So what about what, what, why didn't you want to emulate what they're doing? I just thought that you, you didn't particularly care for yourself. I just, I was amazed at how these have sold millions and there was no character development. Mm -hmm. The story was not intriguing. The chapters were super short and just had ridiculous things like we talked about in our right. last podcast to try to trick you into reading the next one. It just had no depth to it whatsoever and I was, I couldn't finish them. And where can Mr. Connolly's um, lawyers reach you? <laughs> <laughs> I think this is a good time to point out something we've mentioned before yeah. is that when a writer or an artist is very successful, even if you hate their work, there's probably something you can learn from. Yeah, them. and it simply can be, don't do this. I'm, I mean, I've, 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 brought out, I've brought up Dan Brown a couple of times. Um, I read The Da Vinci Code and had a very bad reaction against The Da Vinci Code. Why? Because I felt about halfway through that he was doing, I, all his dirty tricks became very visible and plain to me, and I got really, really annoyed. And I don't like being annoyed at my fiction. Um, and so that taught me, though, that taught me a lot of things about how I'm not supposed to trick people in that same way. And it also kind of taught me the idea that in epic fantasy, I can't afford to do that because I have to have people who are investing a long time into reading my books. Um, so I'd also suggest um, staying away from the Necronomicon um, <laughs> because it will drive you insane. <laughs> All right, uh, question number seven. Well, how do you make a storyline complex and intriguing rather than too simple and easy to figure out? James? <laughs> Brandon, this has gotten way too easy for you to defer to me. Yeah, I know. You know um, this is why we have guests on, because you know, then we can take a break and you know, play PSP like producer Jordo. That, that is such a hard question. I mean, com complexity, things that are intriguing. I don't know. I, I, I honestly, my answer would just be that I rely on my instincts that I, I think I've got to have revelations scattered throughout the story. I've got to have plot twists scattered throughout. I've got to have scenes of suspense that get your blood boiling. 
And I just, I rely on my instincts. I know that's a really crappy answer, I'm sorry. Um, what, what I found works, works well for me is that I'll, I'll come up what I, with what I think is you know, a, a cool, convoluted, twisty sort of plot. And as I am figuring out the answer, I realize, all right, so I was smart enough to figure that out. That means you know, all my readers are going to be smart enough to figure that out. Uh, let's not take answer number one. Let's, let's look for something even more convoluted, more complex. Now let's look for something even worse. And as I start twisting in there, what I find is not that I'm making this overly convoluted. It's that I'm starting to discover the motivations of, of side characters and side organizations that, you know, that entered into this and actually made the situation much more complex than I initially imagined it. And it, it just gets more interesting. Yeah, I, I would say exactly that. I mean, I've found that when I've done exactly what Howard says, I discard the first easy answers. Um, I'm not making things more convoluted. I dig and dig, and what I'm searching for is something that is both more simple, but more surprising at the same time. And then that, that's the elegance you're searching for, for this complexity, is that it seems utterly complicated and complex and mind-boggling until a simple answer comes through in the text, and suddenly everything gets tied together. That's what I'm looking for. You can't always do that, but I think by discarding the first few tries, um, and trying to think a little bit harder and try to work in your character motivations, that can work, that can help. That's pretty much what I do too. Yeah. <laughs> um, in this case, side stories and side um, plots may be what you're also asking about. Um, that you may want to add a few more extra side plots, which if you figure out your, com your, your reveal first, that's several layers deep, and add in some side plots that can weave into that so when the reveal gets revealed, it actually ties up these side plots too, that'll be surprising and shocking to your readers in the way that you want. Um, Try-fail try cycles are another one. Yeah, try-fail cycles. Make, make sure that the if the problem can be solved on the first try, it's, it's too easy of a problem. Um, we are out of, a out of time. I'm going to let James just throw out any writing prompt he wants to give us. All right, you are flying in an airplane and suddenly one of the wings falls off, but the plane doesn't start diving toward the ground. All right, James Dashner's book, The Maze Runner, is in stores now. You can also read his books, The 13th Reality Series, for uh, middle grade readers. So thank you, James. And this has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one -on -one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus. 